Welcome back to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. Uh, in this episode, I'll be finishing up my look at Solomon's Gold, which is book six of The Broke Cycle by, by Neil Stevenson. So um, this section, this last 100 pages or so of this um, book six, it's uh, all set. I think it's all, yeah, it's all set in one day, uh, April 23rd, 1714. And it really is the culmination of this first phase of this investigation that Daniel's been a part of concerning um, uh, the infernal devices, the phosphorus bombs, um, and also uh, Newton's interest in in Jack the Coiner and his efforts to really capture Jack Saftor as this person who may be connected to the Solomonic Gold, but also just someone who has uh, been for a long time disrupting British currency by by counterfeiting. <clears throat> so um, now this doesn't really complete the investigation in any sense. In fact, they end kind of uh, defeated by Jack. So that's that's uh, a nice part of this book. Now, overall, Solomon's Gold is probably my least favorite of the whole Baroque cycle um, because it is about over half of it. Is, it seems it's just Daniel Waterhouse running errands. And if you like Daniel Waterhouse, and being in his head, that's fine. And, and I do like being in his head, but it, it's, it's just kind of drags on. A lot is connected to like him writing letters to Van Hook and Leibniz and collecting science junk and, you know, all that kind of stuff. Um, but really what happens is you have these two bombings that take place. One is on one of the Tsar ships, right, that's supposed to deliver the science stuff to, um, to St. Petersburg. And the second was on Threader's cart. So the question is, like, who's the target? Um, who's the, per, per, you know, who's the perpetrator of this crime? And they form this, you know, Daniel forms this club, uh, an institutionalized club to investigate this, this crime. They don't call the police because you really don't have modern police systems at those, that time. So they're going to pursue the investigation themselves because it does seem to overlap with a lot of other interests. Now, behind all of this, of course, is the Tory Whig dispute that's going on. And that's going to run throughout the whole book is you have a lot of Tories in government, people like, uh, by Count Bolingbroke, who will be kind of a mini villain, mostly in book uh, seven. You have, uh, what's the name, Charles White, the guy who tries to uh, claim that Dapa is his slave. Um, and then you have like the maybe pro Catholic, pro French, pro Jacobite mobs uh, on the street. That's kind of the physical force behind the Tory presence. And they're, of course, roughly backing the Jacobite secession. Then you have of course, the Whigs. Roger Comstock is there. Isaac Newton's sort of in the Whig camp, although he seems to be a little bit more autonomous. Um, and they have their own kind of mobs and uh, anti-Tory mobs. And they support the Hanoverian secession, right? So to what degree is this coinage thing connected to the Tories' ambitions? To what degree are these Tories like Threaders, a bit of a Tory? Is he connected to this? So these are all the, like, the mysteries that are in the backdrop of it, but it centers on like Jack Shafto somehow at the center of it. Um, at least that's, that's clear by the end of this book. 
by this by which I mean book one or book seven. Ah, sorry, book six. Book six, Solomon's Gold. It's hard to keep track because you got three volumes in eight books. Um, but anyways, so this chapter flips back and forth between uh, Daniel and, and Isaac Newton. This is actually the most we we see a lot more of Isaac Newton in this book. Or, I mean, all of System of the World, especially books uh, six and eight. We see a lot more of Isaac Newton. He was always sort of just a presence in the previous books. And he sort of kind of becomes a, almost becomes a character in this part of the story. He's still mostly a presence because he's Isaac Newton. And he's got this inflated opinion of himself. He thinks he's always the smartest guy in the room, even when he's not. And he's very aristocratic and, you know, sneering, you know, looking down upon everyone of lower classes and... Or anyone he sees as an enemy of his, including Leibniz. So, uh, but they're in this investigation, and they're basically humiliated by Jack Shafto, tricked. And they're not, it's not very hard to trick them, actually. They just get some false testimony, lead them to one place, and that's where they get stuck. While the real happenings take place in the Tower of London at the Mint, where Jack Shafto and many of his compatriots, he's got a huge network built up. You know, there's Russians, there are... You know, you got Jack Shafto's boys, who are kind of Irish. Um, they've been cultured. They're kind of culturally Irish. Um, you have, uh, you know, like if you have Genny, I guess that's the Russians again. He's associated with them. Where Saturn fit in all this? What about all the, the thief takers and underground types? Jack Shafto's built this huge network. Are they pro-Tory? Are they pro-Whig? Are they just opportunistic? Are they all have their own ambitions? You know, now here we're going to see Scots play a role and you can understand why Scots would perhaps support the Jacobite succession. Um, anyways, uh, this, it's a pretty good culmination if you like the heist kind of, kind of storyline, but it's hard to keep track, uh, unless you really pay attention. Now they do give you a map of the Tower of London and, um, on the back, actually the back cover of the hardcover edition. I don't know where it is in the paperback. You have uh, London and the environs all the way down the Thames. Um, so you know where the Tower of London is in association with, uh, you know, to the North Sea. Now, Daniel and, and Isaac are going to be sent out to Shive Tor in the Isle of Grain, right at the edge of the, the River Thames, right? Uh, out to the North Sea, because that's where they think, you know, they're chasing on a ship or something. But really, the heist is taking place in the Tower of London. And you got this elaborate map of the Tower of London here with 17 different locations highlighted, um, all of which are connected to the heist. So if you read it and flip back a lot, you can sort of trace where the characters are. I'm not saying I did that, but it's it could be interesting to find. If you're interested in that kind of storytelling, it's there. If you hear more for the ideas, um, there's some stuff in this, this Chuck section, but it's not a whole lot. I think it's more of a the action kind of the action scenes that Stevenson likes to throw into these uh, these books. So we pick up the morning after the um, the torture of this guy, um, this Russian Baines, right? And he's deported, and he confesses during this interrogation. I think Isaac tells him. This is how, of course, Isaac Newton deals with these coiners: torture them, and then if they're guilty half hang and draw and quarter them right so it's really brutal application of force to suppress 
what's the way for the the underclass to 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 move up in society right and i think that's really why jack is such a powerful and important character in this book is that he is someone who could have been you know a great leader a great military commander perhaps he's really brilliant but he was born in the wrong class right now bob shaft do i guess shows there's other paths for such characters but bob remains a shaft uh, a, a sergeant he's never able to move up even though he's shares many of jack's uh, characteristics and as well as his background so anyways baines uh confessed that he was working for jack and he kind of says how to find him this is all just the setup right um, so it's just a, it's just a trap they set up. And so they go on this, the ship, this Atalanta to, um, to, uh, to seek him out. And the question really they're asking here is to what degree is Jack an agent of, of Louis the 14th? Then we flip to one of the better scenes actually, uh, in this whole section of the book. It's set in the Lieutenant's lodging in the tower of London. And you have, uh, the lieutenant general, like the command, he's kind of commanding the, the tower at this point. And Jack knows all the, the shifts, all the personnel, all their relationships. He knows who to bribe. He knows who's on, who's the top command, you know, commander. How long does it take for reinforcements to come in? So he has this all worked out. That's why the heist took so long for him to, to implement. But he's got this guy, Rufus McIan, Lord G. Um, and he's like a high ranking prisoner, like a Jacobite prisoner in the Tower of London. But since he's of aristocratic background he gets certain privileges like he sometimes eats with the lieutenant and he, they talk with him it, it's we've seen the tower of london used as this kind of uh, minimum security kind of prison before for for people of a certain rank we're going to see more of this later in the book too where you have like even uh even um newgate has certain apartments for people who can afford them which are really cushy um and then you have the dungeon um for the regular thieves and and criminals and such um but anyways this lord g is talking with the lieutenant and the other guards or whatever and he's talking in this really strong scottish accent he's talking in english but he's got this really really strong scottish accent and the lieutenant is like accusing him of not really speaking proper english it's not an accent it's not a dialect it's you're really speaking a different language um the audiobook here really helps with the with uh following uh, this this scottish dialect he tells about his own history his relationship with people like jack ketch who's still alive in the book in real life jack ketch he's a real historical character the hangman right the guy who killed duke of monmouth i guess that's his most infamous execution because it was really brutal or whatever but we saw him introduced in king of the vagabonds um as well but he's still alive he actually died in the end of the of the 17th century but I think Neil Stevenson wanted to keep him alive for the climax of this book. So um, Jack Ketch just talked about it a little bit here. Um, but anyways, uh, this Lord G, he's somehow affiliated with Jack or allied with Jack here for this breakout, which is going to be part of this heist. And he has this bottle of scotch, the water of life, right? I guess, yeah, yeah this bottle of whiskey. And it's got this dirk in it. And he smashes the bottle, relieve, revealing the dirk, and he stabs the... Um, the commander here, this lieutenant, through the eye, um, killing him. So this is like the beginning of, of, of the heist. Now, meanwhile, um, that afternoon on this sloop Atalanta, um, they're 
you know, Leibniz and Daniel are heading downstream to try to catch Jack because that's what their, their intel from the torture of Baines led them to. Now, what's really going on in this passage here, I think, is um, like there's a commander on here, Barnes, or Colonel, I guess. Yeah, Colonel Barnes is on the ship with them. And he's a bit suspicious of Newton, of being a, of, of him being a like a pro-Jacobite person. Um, and you see politics kind of overarching everything. Everyone's mind, at least of, of the upper classes, is on the secession, right? And I think it's kind of maybe that's why Jack picked this point to do the heist is because people are distracted. The military seems to be divided. Um, you have different, some Jacobite supporters and things like that. So it's, it's, Ingle's not really unified at this point, right? And everyone's kind of looking over their shoulder. And Barnes here suspects Newton of being a Jacobite. And it's all about really... England at this point, or the perception of England as being somehow stuck between England on the one hand and France on the other, or, or between uh, Germany and France, I should say, between Germany and uh, with the, and that's of course sorry, with Leibniz, right? So when, so really where this came came out, I think why Barnes suspected Newton is he says something about the German, right? And he means Leibniz, but when people say the German, they might be thinking George Louis, like George the First. And anyway, it's just another reminder of just how fraught the politics are at this this point in, in history. Uh, then we go to Cold Harbor um, for the next scene, which is in the Tower of London. This is another fun scene that shows how deep um, the, the, the rhyme zones of, of Jack's uh, network go. Um, because here you have uh, just a couple of, of minor characters, a guy named Dart, who's a barber, and a blackguard named, named Tom. He, sharp, he, he, he um, shines whatever the policeman's um, feet or shoes. And Dart is giving a haircut to this guy, uh, this Jacobite named Hol Holsboy. And he is, and at one point, uh, Dart just starts to threaten his life and they, they take him hostage, right? Um, so Tom leaves to do something while um, Dart is holding him prisoner. So this is like, just like uh, Lord G killing the, the lieutenant. This is kind of keeping this guy out of the game, right? It's taking a, a, a piece off of it. But it's really funny how this guy just kind of takes it in stride that he's being assassinated or he thinks he's being assassinated by this boy and he can't really believe it. It's just a wonderful window into the aristocratic attitude, which is still so strong in England at this point. And this, this disbelief that this barber would move against him. But of course, he thinks it's it's a Whig kind of scam to to get him out of the way. Actually, it, it seems to be associated more with 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 um, Jack's scheme. I guess this is all just keeping certain players uh, causing confusion and things, so the heist on the mint can can take place. Then we're back to Atlanta, um, and once again, they're talking politics. It's um, you know, the difficulty of, of like choosing sides or knowing who's on whose side. And I think there's a theme here is that really politics is distracting everyone. And, and Jack's like laser focused on what he wants to do, wants to, what he wants to do. So that's what, you know, allows him to succeed in a way. You know, he's been laser focused for like 20 years on, on this kind of stuff. And Newton's, you know, been in politics and Daniel Le Le Waterhouse will later be a regent and, 
He's got all this stuff with the Russians. He's con- he's very distracted. He's brilliant. Both of these characters are brilliant. Um, or all the you know Jack too is brilliant. But he's able he's not he's able to be somewhere above the fray of politics. I get the sense. And these people, even when they're doing this stakeout and trying to capture Jack, they think they have a, an easy job of it. They're sitting around talking about um, the fear of the Jacobites and things like that. Um, they talk about like the role of armies in politics. You know, are we going to go back to the days of the English Civil War where this will be settled on the battlefield? Now, these are the things they're talking about, not really focusing on, on the mission at hand. So it's all it's all part of Jack just uh, outsmarting these these people. Like here's what Daniel's thinking about: the ants are all around him, buoying him up and keeping him and the others from drowning. Hope, according to myth, the last thing to emerge from Pandora's box. Feeling fierce, clammy arms reaching around him, Daniel had an almost physical longing for hope, and perhaps hope was no less contagious than fear. He wanted to be infected with hope, so he was trying to think of someone like Ren or Marlborough who would give it to him. It was a hypothesis anyways, and it described the actions of others as well as it did his own. Why had Princess Caroline summoned him from Boston? Why had Threader wanted to make a club with him? Why had Roger wanted him to find the longitude and Leibniz wanted to make a thinking machine? Why did the likes of Saturn trail him through Huckley in a hole, asking for spiritual directions? Why did Isaac solicit his aid? Why did Mr. Baines expect Daniel to look after his wayward daughter in Bridewell? Why were Colonel Barnes and Sergeant Shafto asking him these pointed questions today? because they were all scared, and just like Daniel, they longed for hope and sought anyone who might give it to them, end quote. So that's what's on the mind of many of our characters during this this scene. And while this is happening, you know, shit's going down in, in the Tower of London. And now we come to the moment you've probably been waiting for since you picked up this book, uh, our final introduction to Jack, or our, our, our reintroduction to Jack Shafto. Um, who's been off the off page for 240 pages. Or if you're like me, you're thinking, is that guy really Jack? Um, you know, is that guy Jack in disguise? Is Threader maybe working for Jack? You want Jack to be in the story from the beginning, right? That's why you presume maybe he's in, involved with the bombs or whatever. And that might be right. But you're... Uh, and he certainly is to some degree because of the phosphorus. You, you thought that as soon as you know about the boil and the phosphorus as well. But you want Jack here, but you miss him on stage, right? You miss him on the on on the page, and you don't get as much of it as you would like until I guess the third book in this volume, until the final book of the series. But he does appear here, and it's a great scene. It's it's really a nice scene um, where you got uh, the the gang. So it's like Jack, Edward Dujex is is there now. Jack and Edward Dujex don't really get along, but they have to work together because they're both kind of tied to French interests in a way. Uh, Edward de Jex is, of course, more of a free agent, but, he, you know, he's he's got his own kind of religious motivations uh, going on. Um, he's not quite a, as much an agent. He, actually, Jack's the same way, right? He's sort of an agent of the king, but he's doing things for his own purpose, right? He's got a lies on his mind, primarily. But they light a fire at the, at the tower in order to get the guards to flee to deal with it, so they have another distraction. They've locked down or killed some of the high-ranking people and they cause this distraction um and you have a you know a conversation between edouard de jacques and jack shafto but i think the key here is when jack his sons are here too by the way jack's sons and he finally he kind of talks about his motivations here and i think some of the best jack stuff in these final three books of the broke cycle deal with 
him reflecting at later middle age, he must be in his 50s by this point, you know, reflecting on his life and why he did things, um, the way he, why he did things the way he did and why he do, he's doing this now. So it's a great, uh, uh, it's really a theatrical moment, I guess, uh, a great monologue. He says this, staring at yon tower as if you'd never seen the minyars of Shah Jahanabad, reminding me of my own self, a wee mudlark boy, first time Bob and I sallied up the river. Fascinating it might be to you who had been tending to other matters and tending well, I might add, but I am so bloody sick of the place, even though I never set foot in it. And a thorough study of the Tower of London your father has made, where the tower is concerned I am, as our friend Lord Gatji would say, a dungeon of learning. No small toil for one as unused to study as I. Spent many hours playing with drink your Irish outlaws who have garrisoned it and know its odd corners and passages, sent artists in to sketch me this or that tower, stood up here howling bitter days peering through the perspective glass, wooed the tower's maidservants, bribed and blackmailed the warders. To me, tis now familiar as a parish church to its aged victor. I have traced through the foyed streets the invisible boundary of the liberty of the tower. I know which prisoners kept close and which have been granted liberty. I know the amount of the stipend that the constable of the towers paid for looking after the commoners of means and the commoners without means. Of the guns that look out of the river, I know which are in good order and which may not be fired because of dry rot in their carriages. I know the number of dogs and how many of them are pets, how many are strays, and how many are of the latter are mad. I know which prisoners dwell in which warder. On and on, he says. Um, I know the tower, even though I've never been there, like the back of my hand because I've been studying it for so long. So it's just another reminder of how brilliant Jack is and how what he can accomplish when he, you know, puts his mind to it. And again, it's a lost opportunity for for the world that that Jack wasn't given more opportunities in life, I guess. He also, yeah, I think confesses to his sons that he's he's that he's doing this for Eliza and for their future, right? That um but there's a question here, and there's a bit of a we wonder if he's um why he's why he's still doing this because the war's over right louis the 14th is about to kick off right eliza seems safe um her sons seem safe jack's own kids seem to be doing well they 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 seem to have income from this counterfeiting thing so you know why destroy english currency right now that's obviously the goal here is to destroy english currency or at least to undermine his foundations. If it can't be destroyed, at least undermine his foundations and, and, and create doubt in the system, right? So we're all talking about the system of the world that's being created, right? That's the theme of the final book. The system of the world, not just the new modern science, um, not just the new city that Daniel experiences when he comes into London, not just commerce, right? Not just money, uh, but everything, like all these things combined together into the modern world, right? What we call the modern world, right? Now, Daniel's going to make a point, I think it's in book eight, that, you know, the system of the world is just a shell. It just builds over like a like how a tree will grow over a, an injury, right? A knot. Uh, it'll just grow over it, but the other is still there. So there's a scene where for Daniel's like in the bowels bef below the streets and stuff, and he sees that. Like the ancient city's still there and the new city's just built on top of it, right? Yeah, fire can burn it down sometimes, but it doesn't destroy everything. And you're always just building on the old. So alchemy will always be a perverse perspective in the modern world, right? And that's true today. Maybe we don't have alchemists, but we have 
people who believe in ghosts and crystals and psychic powers and, and things like that. We got religion, even though we have a secular system in many ways. At the heart, it's st you still got religious people. So you, the system can only build around it and cover it up, but it's still there, right? Why did I get on this 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 trend? Oh yeah, the question is like, can Jack really disrupt the system of the world, right? The new system of the world, or a, a counterpoint of it? Um, maybe not, but people are always going to resist this, right? That these things do face resistance, um, and people have many different motivations for why they may resist these these new systems as they emerge. A really great a great reintroduction to Jack Shaftesbury here. It's it's one of the the real saving graces of this this book. I think the G stuff, uh, the reintroduction of Jack Shaft is good. But anyways, um, now we flip to back to the sloop Atlanta. Now they're off the Isle of Grain, which is yeah the Isle of Grain is right at the mouth of the Thames. So it's pretty far from London. So they're they're away from all the action here. Um, and it's revealed here that this has been all been a lay, that they're not going to get Jack Shafto um, here. It's just a decoy, that the Isle of Grain is a decoy. It's called a lay, which is a term that was Daniel picked up before talking to Saturn, I think, uh, in the, the previous day in the, when, they're, when Newton was doing his stakeout dressed up like a syphilis-infested uh, commoner or whatever. And, and we see here Newton's weaknesses, I think. Newton is... Um, he, he he sees right in front of his face sometimes, right? He he's brilliant on some things, but and he you know, but in terms of his interpersonal relationships and his relationship with Jack Shaftwick, he just assumes the obvious, right? That this guy Baines told him the truth, and that's obviously not the case. Um, so that Isaac was so easily duped here, I think, is uh, is emphasized here. All right, next chapter is in the lieutenant's lodging. So this is picking up with uh, that brief minor character we only get for a few pages. Um, Ian, uh, uh, McIan, Lord G. Um, but really what's happening here is he's he's freed and he's takes over the, essentially he takes over the Tower of London uh, with his, with his uh, while the army is in chaos. He's a condemned traitor. He's only going to die. He knows he's probably going to die in this heist, but it gives him his chance to do his heroic. So it's like, it's kind of like the, who is it that, the cavalry, the single man cavalry charge in Cairo of, of La de Sabranto. Um, a, a great individual moment of, of heroism and, and courage here. He's got his claymore, of course, as well, uh, running through the tower, basically seizing it. And he claims it. He finally is able to get on top, top of the White Tower and claim it for himself. Claim it for uh, his family and for Scotland and the Jacobites. So it's a, it's a, it's a sweet moment. So now we flip to a, a side scene. Mostly this is going back between Daniel and the heist on the Tower of London. But we get a couple scenes set back in, in London proper with Dapa. And this is kind of setting up Dapa's story for the future books. Um, and basically... What's quite going on here? Um, well, he's with this guy, Jones, who's like, he's signing an, an indenture. He wants, I guess, travel passage to America. So they're working on working out an indenture ship. They got a financier and all this uh, to to work that out. But, you know, they're just kind of hanging out for the details to be worked out. And then DAPA 
reads a like a I guess it's a it's a printed like bill um, public print like a public bill that's how it's described an illustrated bill that claims that DAPA is a runaway slave the property of Mr. Charles White uh, the, the ad just says this DAPA followed by a slave property of Mr. Charles White Esquire is missing and presumed stolen or astray. A reward in the amount of 10 guineas shall be given to the first per party who brings this uh, N-word to the dwelling of Mr. White on St. James Square. Now, Dapa is, of course, not a slave anymore. He had his freedom. He's been in a free person all, all, all this time. So why is this Tory, Charles White, trying to uh, put in a price on, on Dapa's head? Uh, that's another kind of mystery we have to deal with. Well, as you might suspect, that's to do with the friendship between Dapa and Eliza. And Eliza is the real target here of, uh, of, of Charles White here. So Eliza being seen of associated with the Whigs and all that. So Eliza, some people know Eliza's in London. She's been kind of living in London incognito at this time. But, but some people seem to be aware of it. So Dapa's just being used. But Dapa's going to use this. He's going to or take this earnestly and use it in his uh, anti-slavery work. So now we're getting towards sunset and we flip back uh, to the Atalanta. Um, and they they leave the ship. They eventually leave the Atalanta off uh, this place, also at the mouth of the Thames, Shiv Tor, uh, which is where kind of Isaac Newton sent them after the, the previous um, stakeout turned out to be a bust. And they... They head to another ship, and the ship that they follow, they, they suspect or whatever, it explodes. It's another infernal device exploding. And once again, we see the, you know, the, the educated, the brilliant, the, the natural philosophers kind of running around with, uh, you know, in circles, being tricked by, by a false lead, a bomb going off. It's, it didn't take that much for Jack to distract uh, Daniel and Isaac, he doesn't even think about them, right? He's just doing his own thing. He assumes they're taken care of. So they're the center of our point of view, but they're not really the center of the story, right? Um, in the same way how Jack was the center of our focus of attention in Bonanza, but the real story is like Esfanian and Etienne Dakashan. That's the real focus. That's really the powers behind the scenes. Jack's just sort of going along in a lot of ways. Here it's, it's, it's Daniel and Isaac Newton who are completely flummoxed by by relatively easy deceptions. And we get another, uh, so then we go back to uh, the monument where uh, Jack and his boys are, and they're, they're just waiting for the news from McGeehan that the tower has been taken and they're, they're free to move. Um, but we get some, now there's a mob building up too around the Tower of London because I think Jack must have sent out news that the Tower of London, the mint's gonna be giving out free coins to people. So this created a mob, further distraction for the police. Again, it was all set up beforehand. Um, but we get some another few wonderful Jack moments. Even though Jack's only in this book for a few pages, um, he's when he's on screen, it's wonderful stuff. When he's on, on the page, it's wonderful. Um, I think it's here maybe where he, 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 he mentions Eliza. Yeah, um, where he says, I, my true motivation here is not just to, to ruin the money of England, but actually I'm doing this for love. He says, now, lads, either this will work or it won't. If it goes awry, never forget there are other places to be besides England. 
You've seen more of them than most. I don't need to tell you twice. The great Mughal is always hiring good mercenaries. Queen Kotakal would be delighted to have you back in her court to say nothing of her bedchamber. Our partners in Queen Kuta would give you a hero's welcome at the foot of Eliza Peak. Manila is not such a bad place either. I do not recommend you go to Japan. And remember, if you go the other way to the shores of America and travel west long enough, you'll come across the path of good, good old Moses, assuming the Comanches had not made him into moccasins. So there's no purpose in trying to be served and tearing here, lads. If I end up at Tyburn, just do me a favor before you leave. Before you embark on a new life overseas, assuming that that's your fate, find Eliza and tell her she's my true love. That's it. So he still has Eliza in his heart. It's so sweet. Um, but we also get a nice reminder of some of the events of Bonanza, which is such a great book. You know, Moses setting off the pirate queens of, of the Malabar coast. Um, Queen Kotaka, Queen, Queen Akuta. Um, yeah. I guess Queen Akuta was the city, right? Queen Kotaka was the, was the or the, the base, right? Queen Kotara was the, 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 the actual queen. Uh, you know, Finding Moses, who's gone off to the American West, right? There's a whole other novel of, of good old Mos Moses of the Cross, this crypto Jew wandering around. You know, the American Southwest. Beautiful stuff. But Jack's also prepared to go to Tyburn if need be. Yeah, which might be likely. I mean, he's not doing something easy here. So, um, next. Um, next, we're back to Dapa here. And um, some people actually try to capture Dapa. He's, he's, he's kind of outed. And some people try to catch him. And then who saves him? But... But Johan, uh, Jean-Jacques, Eliza's son, Eliza's first, first son saves him. Um, and then Dapa takes a moment to write a letter to Eliza. And he says, this is how we're going to, you've been looking for uh, something that would awaken the public consciousness about slavery. Um, we've been trying to find narratives that can do that. And like, I now have the story that can do this, right? Um, the story, he writes this. Johan did his duty bravely and well. Pray do not rebuke him when his carriage is found empty. When last you and I conversed, we spoke of my career as an author of books and teller of slave stories. A solemnitude was formed in which my works to date were likened to so many balls of grape shot, which when fired at our enemies posed a nuisance, but never send any slave ship to Davy Jones's locker where they ought to be. You exhorted me to find off gathering more grape shop and turn my efforts to finding a single cannonball. Until, I day, to, until today, I assumed that the cannonball by which has meant the story that will convince Englishmen once and for all the absurdity and the enormity of slavery would be found in some slave auction in Sao Paulo, Kingstown, or Caroline. Uh, but in my surprise, I this afternoon found the cannonball in the pits of my own stomach. Minerva sails in the morning tide, but you will find me in a jail somewhere in London. I shall require paper, ink, and your prayers. So what Dapa here is saying is I'm going to let myself be captured. I'm, going to, I'm not going to try to escape even though I could. And instead, I'm going to write my letters from jail so this is speaking to what do we got we got you know maybe letter from a Birmingham jail we want to think of we want to think of 12 years a slave where a free man was enslaved unjustly and put into slavery um you know throw uh, a little bit of civil disobedience going on here I wish Neil Stevenson had developed this plot line a little bit more um we don't really hear too much of DAPA in book seven 
think we get uh, he writes a little bit on his experience and Daniel reads it he writes an essay on power which is kind of fascinating uh, and we come across that in the final book of the series but I, I think there's more space this would have been nice to have developed if Neil Stevenson could have shrunk down some of the scenes that that go on a little bit too long and given us a tad more I think on this because there's some really good ideas here um, but it's just in a few pages but as I like to say this book 25 six, 2600 pages but it's got like 260 ideas so it's like one good idea page or for 10 pages it's pretty efficient when you compare it to most books you read but this is the one that I, I would have liked to have been extended a little bit more so then we go back to Shive Tor with with Daniel and Isaac Newton and they just realize that they've been tricked by the coiner and they hear ticking so they assume it's an infernal device about to go off and, and end them uh, that's a very short chapter then we go to the climax of this book perhaps or the final really the final moment of the of this book on the white tower um, at dusk so it's Jack and and dejects and, and Saturn shows up in this scene too for some reason um, and they have they're in the white tower now they're in the mint and they're ready to do their their heist. And what do they steal? Well, um, well, I think Saturn is there because of maybe he can unlock the picks or something. He has that technical knowledge. But that's what they do. They find the picks. So the picks, if you don't know, it's it's a real thing. I think they still do it every year. It's that when you I guess when you make a coins, you put at the mint, you put the perfect representations of that coin in the picks um right with a certain amount of gold or whatever and then so this is the model right and then the trial of the picks is you take coins from the public and then you contrast them right and if the money is adulterated if the money doesn't match the picks then the trials failed and the guy who runs the bins in big trouble right you know I think even Isaac Newton has his life threatened a little bit because of this. But if the Pix is taken and tampered with and someone puts other coins there or takes coins out, you know, now you have nothing to base it off of, right? So then what can you do in this case if the Pix is stolen? Well, it's offered up in the next book, I think, that maybe the trial of the Pix could take place. You just by calling in enough coins from the realm... And then comparing them, and if there's a lot of inaccuracies, then if the average is off or something, then you say, ah, there is something, you know, British currency is is offended. But this is what Isaac Newton cannot tolerate because he knows British currency is being tampered with. Um, so the trial of the picks would fail in that case, and he'd be in trouble. So this is a real threat to, to Isaac Newton and to uh, trust in the British monetary system, right? So... It's a, it's a pretty long scene here, um, but there's a lot of stuff going on in the background with the mob and the Rufus McGeehan and uh, Yeoman Clooney, another character I never ever mentioned, um, another, all his associates and things. But it centers on Jack, Saturn, and Jex finally seizing the, seizing the picks, um, which is a beautifully intricate device with a, with, a, with a device that doesn't look like a keyhole for opening it. It's like a little, like a puzzle box almost. Um, and they, they open it. And that's how the scene sort of ends. Um, it's not clear. We're not told really what Jack does, if anything, to the picks, right? It's enough that it's possibly been tampered with. Um, although I think it is talked about later on. In the next book, what exactly happens? 
Um, then uh, final scene, real final scene, is Shive Tor again, and this ticking bomb thing goes off, and it's just a jack-in-the-box, which is a nice little fuck you to Daniel and and Isaac by, by Jack Shafto. Right? Um, and that's the end of Solomon's Gold. So, as I said, I, Solomon's Gold for me is, I guess, my least favorite book. Um, I think the heist is nice, but it's um, a lot of, I'd like to see more Jack, I guess. Um, certain scenes in the, even the heist go on a little bit, like the Rufus McGeehan scenes of fighting and seizing the tower and all that. They wear out the welcome a little bit. But really what wears out the welcome is like Daniel like running errands and stuff uh, around London. Again, if you like Daniel and you like being in his head, it's good stuff. And you see his anxiety and his feeling of being rootless and how much London's changed. That's all important thematic stuff. Uh, you know, we're talking about this new system of the world and London is the center of it. And, and London's change is representative of that system of the world. I just have to put, to, I have to say this is my least favorite of the books in the, in the series. But it does set up things for one of my favorite books in the series, which is Currency. Um, it's kind of a under-the-radar book uh, in the series. You know, I think if you read through this, by the time you get to Currency, you're, you're waiting to get to the end of the book, right? So you're, it, and it does sort of get you from here, from there to here, right? Here to there to, to the final book. So, but there's some wonderful stuff here, like, uh, you know, Daniel going to the continent and there's a whole kind of assassination attempt on the Hanoverians and Daniel's in the middle of it. You get to, we get to see Eliza a little bit more in this section of the book. We have, uh, Jack and Eliza sort of reunited just, just ever so briefly. We have a, a continuing of this investigation leading to a, a stakeout where they're being duped the whole time by by none other than our friend Jack Shafto, who has uh, infiltrated the club. Uh, it's, spoiler alert, um, what else do you have here? Uh, oh yeah, like uh, Leibniz returning with uh, Peter the Great to London and, and Daniel sort of getting rid of the Solomonic gold. He's, he sort of works behind Isaac Newton's back to get the Solomonic gold out of London and make it the part of the first computer. Um, so I don't know, maybe I'm a little too, too high on the currency. I just, I do think it's kind of an under the radar book because it's, it's, it's sort of just the middle of this long story, really system of the world kind of is one long story. And it's kind of just the middle part of it. But it's one of my favorite books uh, for some of its scenes. There's the one where Handel is directing the opera. And there's Jack and Jacks are dueling on the stage. And the, you know other people are fighting. Others are still playing. And he's still conducting. It's, it's really kind of funny. Um, oh, I forgot one thing. There's a... Nobody expects a Spanish Inquisition joke in this part of Solomon's Gold too, so look out for that if you're reading this 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 book. Um, all right, I guess I don't want to talk too much about currency. Um, anything else about Solomon's Gold? No, I guess I said enough about it. But in the next three episodes, I'll cover currency um, books, that, which has like the least interesting title of all of them, and it does make sense in a way because. You know, it's metaphorically it has different meanings, and there's actually a conversation about currency um, at some point.
but it's not being used as reference to water, but being used in reference to the money supply, right? The velocity of money, right? So a coin, see, it's having good coinage is one thing, and it, it does make people trust the money and want to use it, but the real importance of currency is that it passes around, right? One guinea passed around 100 times is 100 guineas, right? That's what the velocity of the money. It's, it's, that's an important modern concept that really breaks free of mercantilism, right? And it's kind of key to modern capitalism. So anyways, that's going to be it for uh, Solomon's Gold. You know what I think of it. Um, it's, you know, among a great series, it's, it's probably the, my least favorite, but it's still good. Uh, so that's it for now. Uh, let me know what you thought of Solomon's Gold and the Baroque Cycle overall. I'll see you next time as I jump into currency. Thank you.